Our text this morning is Romans 8, 18 through 32. <clears throat> For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who have subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why does he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for the good to them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we say then, then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? May the Lord bless the exposition of his word. Will you pray with me as we come now to God's holy word? <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God that you are. That you are holy, holy, holy. You're merciful. You're mighty. And you're a God who's Revealed yourself to us. Revealed yourself to us in glory. In your Son. Through your word. And so Father, now I pray that each heart in this room would be worked on by your Spirit. That by your Spirit you would portray Jesus Christ before us as crucified. And that Christ crucified would be our greatest joy, our greatest passion, and the thing we glory in. 
more than anything else. Be glorified now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's a sincere privilege and a joy to be with you today on the the last day of this year, expounding probably the most impactful verse in my life. And so I want to bring similar encouragement and help to you. And as we, as we come to the end of the year and as we come into to 2024, many of us have likely been reflecting or are going to be reflecting today on the year that passed and, and also looking forward to the year ahead, looking forward to 2024. And perhaps this year was, was relatively happy and so we're thinking about more of the goodness that's likely to come our way in the year to come. And maybe, maybe the year was, was challenging, and so we're bracing ourselves for more, more trials in the year ahead. And for most of us, it's probably a mix of both. Now, whether we're, we're thinking about the opportunities ahead, or the challenges to come, or that mix, each of us who are in Christ need confidence in the grace of God to undertake whatever comes our way in this next year. And we need this confidence, we need confidence in that grace, because it's unchangingly true that the Christian life is and will remain demanding and difficult for a myriad of reasons. And so our lives, both individually and corporately, as a body, will no doubt have challenges in the coming year. Jesus told us that this is a narrow road that we walk and we'll need to undertake duties and undergo trials along that walk, including in the year ahead. Now, as I meditated on this this verse, in particular Romans 8.32, I I started to think about some of the challenges that would face us in the coming year, some of the challenges that face us as believers. And here, here are the few of the challenges and difficulties that I think might face us, some some general species, categories of challenges. First, there's temptation. There are the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places that are arrayed against us. At times like a sniper waiting to pick us off, and at other times like a cavalry charging at us at a full sprint. Those assaults of temptation can be intense. And if you're anything like me, those times make you wonder. How am I going to survive this onslaught and every other onslaught after and make it to the end? Do you ever ask yourself questions like this? How am I going to get there to be with Christ in glory as weak as I am? How could that be possible? One more species of challenge and trouble that comes upon us and tempts us in a different kind of way than that direct onslaught to our flesh is the kind of trouble that comes from a hard providence. Something happens that feels like it's just going to break you. Someone else's decision or action or a sickness or a job loss or a natural phenomena or, or a not wrong, uh, not sinful, though maybe a wrong decision on your part, an unwise decision, the kind of decision that has ongoing ramifications for yourself and for your family, any one of these things can bring waves of discouragement to our hearts 
and lives. These are the kinds of things that come into our life and, and almost reflexively drive the question out of us, why? Why did that happen? Why did they do that? Why am I going to live with this? Another time of, of pressure and challenge in the Christian life can be those opportunities, those great moments of decision that our entire life direction and usefulness and happiness at least seem to rest on. We're always, always called to trust the Lord day by day. But there, there are times when that need to trust Him is more acute, more significant, more momentous. It could be that you're called to some particular task. Maybe you're being called to a position of leadership at work or in the church or relationally, and you wonder if you're up to the task and you have a decision to make. Either I'm going to do this thing or I'm not going to do this thing. And often, that decision hinges on our evaluation of our own strengths, our weaknesses, and the strength of God's grace to meet our needs. Perhaps you already find yourself in that place of responsibility in marriage and family life with its demands and, and changing needs, with growing and changing children, with relational dynamics that stretch our character and unveil weaknesses. There are changing demands and unknown challenges that continue to come up in those situations. The question in all of these opportunities, duties, and demands, in temptations, in hard providences, in decisions, in opportunities, in responsibilities, in all of it, the question becomes, how strong is the grace of God, and will I have what I need to bring God glory no matter the circumstance? In all of these things, in all of the circumstances, and as an overarching aim and principle, we know that we're supposed to be sanctified. And so that can be another reason that there's challenge because not only is that challenge coming towards us, but we're supposed to overcome and progress as we move through it. We know we're supposed to grow. We're supposed to be conformed to the image of Christ. We're supposed to do good works. And when we consider what that really means, which is a combination of aggressive action and daily faithfulness over the long haul, it can sometimes either seem just painful or impossible or both. How is someone like me going to grow? Can I grow in this hard circumstance? Am I going to lose something that I can't live without when I mortify sin and cling to God's word and purposes? Can I grow in spite of the weakness and sin that seems to plague me? How will I, of all people, be conformed to the image of Christ? For all these things, in all these duties, challenges, and opportunities, where are we going to find the resources that we need? In times like these, with questions like these, generalities, generalizations aren't going to be enough. Or at least I, I find that they're, they're not. We, we're talking about some very significant, weighty, difficult things here. 
I need something solid. I need something even more significant than the circumstance. I need something even more weighty than the fear and the difficulty. I need to know why I can trust God in these things to get me to the end, to conform me to the image of Christ, to lead me through the dangers, through the toils and snares, to glorify him in each opportunity and contingency. In all of these things, I need to know on what specific basis I'm trusting God. Not just that I can trust God, but why I can trust him. I need to be transformed in those moments by mind renewal. Our flesh and the forces of wickedness will insinuate the seeds of particular thoughts into our minds. Doubting thoughts, fleshly thoughts, fearful thoughts, thoughts like this. God won't give you what you need. You won't be able to complete that hard task. He's not going to take care of you. This temptation will overwhelm your soul. To counter those lies, we need specific thoughts. In order to have our minds renewed, we need to replace that specific, fleshly, fearful, faith-sapping logic with other logic, biblical, courage-enhancing, faith-empowering, sin-killing, God-glorifying logic on a moment by moment basis. Now where, where can we go to find logic that's that specific, that solid, that convincing? There's likely no better place to go to find that topic than the text before us. As we look at Romans 8.32, we're going to see that the Father's past disposition towards us guarantees his future disposition. And we'll see how the unchanging disposition and love of the Father towards us guarantees that all of our needs will be met and all the troubles, opportunities, demands, and duties of the Christian life. First, we'll look at the Father's past. It's been said that the best indicator of future behavior is past behavior. And that's why understanding the Father's future disposition, understanding the Father's past disposition towards us, rather, is so important for understanding his future disposition towards us. If I'm trying to understand this question and answer it, how will I know that I'll have what I need to endure this trial, to face this temptation, to fulfill this ministry or task, and ultimately to grow into the image of Christ, then I need to know about the one who is my only supply of all the grace I'll ever need. Look at, look at verse 32 with me. First half of the verse says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Let me ask you, what's the central aspect of this verse? Is it the not sparing? Is it the son? Is it the giving? If we look at this correctly, 
we'll actually see that the central aspect of this section, of this verse, is actually he. What follows after is a description of he. And he is the father, the first person of the Trinity. Now, just who is the father in this context? In this context, what, what's the Apostle Paul communicating to us about the Father? How is he being described? The Father is described as the one who did not spare his own son. Paul could have said so many things about the Father. He's described as the one who was for us in the preceding verse, Romans 8.31. In that verse... Paul describes God as the one who is for us, saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's a comforting thought. God is for me. In light of all that Paul's just said before in Romans 8 about God's promises to work all things together for good, specifically manifested in the reality that we'd see the good process of God conforming us to the image of Christ take place, Paul says this, God is for you. Then the question comes, how? How is God for me? How will he remain for me? Being predestined was in the past. Being called was in the past. Being justified was in the past. Being adopted was in the past. Being set apart to live for God's purposes. Being raised up together with Christ. It was all in the past. So what does Paul specifically do to answer the question and to further reinforce the question that God will be for us and that he is for us? He reaches back yet again into the past for proof. The proof that God is for us is found in past action on his part. It's found in past action on the Father's part. And the thing that he centrally highlights the thing that he reaches back for and brings into the present is the father's giving up of his own son. In light of the things that Paul's spoken about in Romans where he's comprehensively preached the gospel, he could have said so many things. The father could have been described as the one who justified us. He could have been described as the one who predestined us, who adopted us, who called us. He could have been described as the one who gave us the spirit, the spirit of adoption. But rather than describing the Father in any, any of those completely legitimate and biblical ways, where Paul goes here is to bring to mind the most weighty, costly gift that the Father could have given, namely his Son. The Father is described specifically in this context as the one who did not spare his own son. So apparently, when we wonder whether God is for us, we're to remember as the one, we're to remember him as the one who did not spare his own son. When you wonder whether God is for you and will provide what you need in that massive decision, you're to remember that he didn't spare his own son. When you're wondering whether he's for you in the midst of a hard providence, you're to remember that he didn't spare 
his own son. When you're wondering whether you'll make it to the end, you're to remember that he did not spare his own son. When you're wondering whether God is for you and will conform you to the image of Christ, you're to remember that he did not spare his own son. Now why? Why should we remember that specifically? Again, it's, it's best if we avoid generalizations here. If we know and, and trust the scriptures, we know that God loves us if we're in Christ. And we know that Jesus dying for us, not being spared for us, is the central element and demonstration of that love. But in those pains of life, in the fears of life, in the difficulties, we need a logic that counteracts our fleshly logic. We need a logic with proof and evidence more solid than the agony and struggle and challenges of life. When you're in pain, that's real. That feels so real. When you're afraid, it feels like you're enveloped in a tornado. Those emotions can be disorienting. When you're, when you're wondering whether you're going to have what you need to do what you need to do, that doubt can be like a boulder that you walk around with on your back. And that kind of emotion can be debilitating. Now, whether it's disorientation or debilitation, as I mentioned earlier, these feelings speak things to us. These intense emotions form thoughts in our minds. The intense emotions triggered by difficulty cause thoughts to form, and those thoughts are often in the form of a doubting question. And one of the things they say to us is this, is God for you? And we're wise to say, yes, Romans 8.31 says, God is for me. I know it, I believe it, I trust it. But God is so good and wise and considerate of our frailty that he gives us not only the words that allow us to know that he's for us, he gives us a reminder of the weighty, costly, incomprehensible action that shows he's for us. And he does that by reminding us that in the past, he did not spare his own son. This is the father's past. The best indicator of future behavior is past behavior. And that's the case here. Now, what has the Father done in the past, and how does that give me trust about what he's going to do in the future? What exactly did it mean for him to not spare his own son? In order to form a, a foundation for that connection, we need to think about the love of the Father for the Son. The foundation of our confidence in God's disposition towards us in the future is a combined understanding of the love that God has for his own son and the suffering that the son endured. That's our foundation, the combination of those two realities. And we can begin to lay this foundation in part by comparing some of the best human love with the love of God the Father for God the Son. 
Good earthly fathers love their sons. Maybe even with the best kind of love that a redeemed yet sinful man can muster. But this heavenly father who loves this beloved son has no sin. So there's nothing hindering him from the greatest kind of love. God the Father has no flaws. No sin has ever come in the way of his love for his son. He's love itself. He's perfect. And his love for his son is perfect. And earthly dads love their sons as sinful as their sons might be. They love their sons at times in spite of what they do. In contrast, God the Father loves what is perfectly lovable, namely, his perfect son. What's the point of all this? Is it, am, I, am I trying to denigrate human love? Is it, is it an attempt to denigrate the love between an earthly father and an earthly son? That's not the case at all. That's how, not what I'm trying to do. It's just to say that the goodness of the best earthly father-son relationship, as good as it is, and it's very good, pales almost infinitely in comparison with the love of the father for the son. He's the son of his love, the perfection of beauty. All that's good and right and true. Loved by the Father, the one who loves everything that's good and right and true. He's his own son. What comes before that phrase, his own son, in our text? What immediately precedes that phrase? What at least might seem to make sense to us would be he who blessed his own son or he who highly favored his own son, or he who exalted his own son, giving him all things, he who honored his own son. That's what you do with your son. You bless them. You do good to them. And at the very least, you keep them from harm. But praise God, his ways are not our ways. All of those things are true of the son. The Father has blessed him forever. He's highly favored the Son. He's exalted him to the highest place. But those things, those blessings, that exaltation, that's not what Paul highlights here. It's not the fact of the favor the Father has for the Son which Paul speaks of. No, he says that the Father did not spare his own Son. Good fathers don't just spare their own sons. Good fathers bless their sons. Good fathers favor their sons. Good fathers give to their sons. But what we have here is the best father and the best son, and what's said is that he did not spare him. This not sparing is that other aspect of our foundational confidence that the Father will be graciously disposed towards us in the future. Now, interestingly, every, every other time that this word for spare is used in the New Testament, it refers to those who were disobedient to God. So there are three other uses. First use 
It's used to refer to God not sparing the evildoers at the time of the flood. So they weren't spared. Second, God didn't spare Israel in their disobedience. Third use, God didn't spare fallen angels. So not sparing almost always means giving up the disobedient to judgment. And it's almost always because here we have him not sparing his own son, the perfectly obedient one. Now, why? Why would God not spare his own son? We would each spare our own son if we had one. This father's ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. God the father who delivered up his son by his predetermined plan and foreknowledge had the best purposes for good in the greatest atrocity ever committed. Both the unfolding atrocity of the death of the Son of God at the hands of sinful men, and all of the good which eternal, eternally flowed from it and will eternally flow from it came from the decision by the Father in eternity past with the Son's agreement to not spare his own Son. That decisive act of sacrifice was for our good. When he didn't, he didn't spare his Son, it was for our good. When Christ was lied about, when Christ was falsely accused, when he was unjustly condemned, it was for our good. When he was bit, beaten, spit upon, mocked, reviled, that was for our good. When he had nails driven into his hands and feet, when he was hung, exposed, poor, and shameful upon that cross, crowned with thorns, blood flowing down. That was for our good. When the sky went dark, when the Father turned his face away, when the cup of wrath was drained down to the dregs, when the sinless one bore the painful pen penalty of unimaginable suffering in his own person until all the righteous wrath, judgment, and fury against the sin of the elect was gone, exhausted, done with. That was for our good. That's what our text says, isn't it? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He gave him up for us all, the people of God, who have been predestined, called, justified, adopted, who have received and rested upon Christ as our sole hope. It was for us. It was for you. If you don't know him, if you haven't received him, if you haven't embraced the Son and all of his benefits, will you not embrace him now? Will you reject such love and grace? Will you reject such a father? A father who will embrace you as a child if you'll have him as a father. A father who did not spare his, his son for sinful people like me and like you. This father who loves the son so much with an everlasting love, with an incomprehensible love, with a love from all eternity, decided to put the most awful load, the most terrible burden, the most heavy weight 
on the sun. Now, how heavy was that load and, and how terrible was that burden? I think we get a good picture of this when we look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. There Jesus was the night before the crucifixion in the garden, the God-man who was all-glorious and all-sufficient from all eternity, the one who created all things, the one who was upholding all things by the word of his power, the one who showed forth the glory and majesty and might of his full deity while yet incarnate. There he was, the most powerful man or entity or anything to ever walk the earth being very God. There he was, the sweat pouring down like great drops of blood as he contemplated the cup of God's wrath. Full deity and yet true man pushed to the limit. Have you ever had a night like that? Where your limit was, was reached? And I'm not saying in a sinful, lose your temper kind of way. I'm just saying you're pushed to the edge in your weakness. You're at your wit's end. You're struggling. You're crying. You're crying out to God and you're struggling to pray. And this isn't to, again, denigrate anything in the human experience, but if we were to multiply our worst night infinitely, and think about what we were facing on that night. That's what Christ faced that night. That's, that's the barrel that he was staring down. He was fully man. And so he felt what he felt in a real way. And, and that weight and burden was absolutely off the charts. The one who held up and holds up the entire universe with ease was about to take on what seemed to him to be an unbearable burden. The weight and burden in the face of facing the cup of divine wrath was incomprehensible. The weight was so heavy that he prayed for it to be taken away if there could be another way. And this, this is the weight that the Father did not spare the Son of. Enough weight to push the all-glorious, all-powerful, sinless Son of God to his absolute limit. And the Father gave this burden to the Son for us. He did that for you. The Father gave the Son that burden for you. What love. What love of the Father for us would cause him to give his beloved Son up for us all. Infinite love. Incomprehensible love. Love like the love he has for the Son. The Father's love for his chosen people is as high as the heavens are above the earth. This love for us, demonstrated in the giving up of the Son, is the love that inspired these words. We're with ink, the ocean filled, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, 
Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. That's the love that caused the infinitely loving Father to give up his infinitely loved Son for us all. That's why we, though born in sin, having offended a holy God, now have peace with him by faith, by forsaking every other trust and resting in the work of the not spared Son. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's no condemnation for anyone who's in Christ Jesus and the son who the infinitely loving father gave up. Now, how great was the cost when he gave the son up? We get a picture of that cost when we see Jesus, the last Adam, the perfect man, crying out to the Father on the cross. And what, what did he say? He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father had placed the wrath that was the result of all the justice which was due for all of the sin, for all of those who would ever believe, he placed that upon the Son. One eternity in hell is incomprehensibly painful. A sinner in hell suffers something that we don't even want to think about and that we can never grasp. But the suffering that the Father gave up the Son to was of a different quality. It was greater than a sinner suffering eternal torment. Now, this, this language is a little archaic, but I want to share something from Thomas Goodwin. It's kind of complex, but just follow me closely here because I think the, the message is worthwhile. He says this, By reason of the incapacity of the damned in hell to take in the full measure of God's wrath due to them for their sins, therefore their punishment, that is the punishment of the damned, though it be eternal, yet never satisfies because they can never take in all as Christ could and did. And so theirs is truly less than what Christ underwent. He could take it all in a small space and more fully satisfy God's wrath in a few hours than they could unto all eternity. I'm going to paraphrase a little part of what, what Goodwin said here. So what, what he's communicating is that the wrath undergone by the damned in hell is truly less than what Christ underwent in three hours. So you have something going on eternally, then you have something going on for three hours, and that's what Christ bore, which is greater than this eternal suffering. So the sun being stricken, smitten, and afflicted for us was a mysterious, excruciating, loving cost. And that's what the Father gave the Son up to. We feel pain when, when those we love hurt, right? We, we worship a God who commands us to weep with those who weep. And, 
and seeing someone we love, or even someone we don't know at times, seeing them suffer, that can cause compassion to well up out of us. And it doesn't take much for us to feel the weight of someone else's pain and for that to be draining, costly, and painful to us. It's costly in part because we are weak and changeable. But here, the Father, the immutable, unchangeable one, who's satisfied within himself, this one incurred the cost of giving up his own son for the sake of us all, because of his love. He for whom all things are easy, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the fully sufficient one, the one who owns all things and has all resources in himself, incurred cost. It costed nothing for the Father to create all things. And it costs nothing to guide all history with intricacy and intentionality. But this was to him true cost, the cost of giving up his son. Now, what does this mean for us now? Now, it's very, very conceptual, maybe. What does this mean for us now? What are the implications? Paul could have approached these implications from, from so many different angles. And I think here, here are a few of those implications that he could have drawn out that would have been totally valid, but which he chose not to draw out. Here are a couple of examples. He gave him up for us all, therefore live in gratitude. He gave him up for us all, therefore put sin to death. He gave him up for us all, so you should live sacrificially as well. Those are all legitimate biblical things to say, biblical concepts that we could find elsewhere, but in the context, that's not where Paul goes. Paul makes a different kind of connection. Remember your needs, your fears, how you wonder, how you wonder if you can make it to the end if you can endure temptation, if you'll make it through the hard circumstances you're in or the hard circumstances that might be coming or hard providence. How you wonder how God can use you for a difficult but fitting task. How you wonder whether God is conforming you and will conform you to the image of Christ. Here's the answer to all of that wondering and, and all of those doubts. A God who is so loving in the past, so infinitely loving, so as to give up his infinitely loved son in order to love sinners, will surely love you in that same way in the future, from now on and unendingly into eternity. And that kind of love means meeting every kind of need for every person for whom the Son died. That's the Father's future towards all of us who are in Christ. Having given us the greatest possible gift, having incurred the most monumental cost in the past, how will He not also with Him in the future freely give you all things.
This is what many have recognized as an argument from the greater to the lesser. It's a way to prove a second premise by citing a first premise. It's to say, if this first thing is true, this greater thing is true, then this second lesser thing is true as well. So here would be a few examples. They're not, they're not the best, but bear with me here. Um, if you can sprint, you can walk. Okay, if you can sprint, you can walk. Or if you have $10 million, you can buy a book at Goodwill. Okay, so if you can do these things or you have these things, you can do or have these other things. The first premise definitively and convincingly proves the second premise. And Paul does the same exact thing in the text, but with something far more weighty, more glorious, and more impactful. So here it is. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, first premise, that's the greater thing. How will he not also with him freely or graciously give us all things? That's the lesser thing, much less. The first thing proves the second thing. As I mentioned, there, there was a cost incurred in the giving up of, of his own son. But when he gives you all things, he incurs no cost. He owns the universe. He works all things after the counsel of his will. He's all wise, all powerful, all knowing. Governing trillions of providences in your life and pouring down grace upon your life now. All of that, that costs him nothing. And it becomes clear just how little that costs him when we compare it to the cost of giving up his own son. How does this all connect with us in those specific situations today? How does, how does an argument from the greater to the lesser connect with us? Going back to those questions, will you make it to the end? To be with Christ in glory? Of course you will. He gave you his own son. He's not going to buy you with the blood of his own son and throw you away after. Sane people don't spend all they have on a piece of art or some other valuable and then fling it off a cliff the next day. Sane people don't do that, and God is more than sane. He's all wise and truly loving. Having given up the son for the payment of your sins, He's now furnished you with everything you need to endure. He sealed you with his spirit. And even now, he's given you the high priestly intercession of Christ to assure you and ensure that you'll make it to the end. Will you be able to fulfill your duty or to complete the task of costly obedience that's before you? Of course you will. He already gave you his own son. Therefore, he'll stand by you and strengthen you. He'll uphold you. He'll provide you with sufficient grace to glorify Christ in your life. Do you think that God would give you Christ and then not give you what you need to glorify that same Christ? 
That's what God wants to do in your life. That's what God wants to do in our lives. Magnify Christ through obedience. Paul starts and closes this book, the book of Romans, with the phrase, the obedience of faith. That's what he intends to accomplish. That's what he intended to accomplish in the giving up of the Son. Having intended to accomplish it, will he not furnish you with everything you need to glorify Christ in whatever he's called you to do? Will you have the resources to overcome that overwhelming temptation? Of course you will. He already gave you his own son. When the evil day comes, when the evil moment comes, when the time of temptation comes, whether you're being sniped at or charged at, do you think that there's going to be anything lacking for you to overcome that temptation and glorify your father by overcoming it? He's given you his spirit to lead you into warfare, to crucify sin. And he's given you this verse so that you know when you crucify and forsake sin, you're not losing out on anything. And you're not losing out on anything because he's already promised you all things. He's given you the armor of God that you might stand firm. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for you, will he not give you what you need in the time of temptation in order that you'll be able to glorify him? Will you have what you need to be able to endure that affliction, to endure that hard providence? You undoubtedly will. He can even provide what we need by totally altering how we see our afflictions. And he does that by the logic in this very verse. He who did not spare his own son gives us these afflictions and the grace needed to endure them and grow through them. Hard providences can be just that. They're hard. We don't want those kinds of things. But perhaps we can see them differently. Our afflictions, though they're not gifts, produce blood-bought benefits in our lives. He provides us with the logic to benefit from these afflictions and not be crushed under them. Specifically, that logic is that the Father, who loves us so much that He would give His own Son, this same Father has numbered every hair on our heads, being intimately involved with every detail of our lives, and has good intentions in these hard providences. In fact, He has the best intentions in each and every single difficulty, no matter the size, small or big. He intends to conform us to the image of Christ. It's all impossible for us, but it couldn't be easier for him. And we know that because he didn't spare his own son. He's the one who predestined you, called you, justified you, sanctified you, is sanctifying you, and will glorify you. He'll finish the work that he began when he gave up his son. 
What then shall we say to these things? If God our Father, the giver of the Son, was for us in the past, who can be against us? Who can bring any charge against us? No one. Because part of the all things that God purchased for us is our righteousness. Perfect righteousness. Justification in the Son. Who can condemn us? No one. Included in the all things, God has given us his risen and interceding son, our great high priest. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will separate us from this love, this perseverance empowering justification, guaranteeing, affliction, sweetening, grace, providing, sanctifying love. Because the hardest thing, the son not being spared, was already done for you. This love ensures that in your life now and at every moment in the future, you'll have all that you need, because everything that you need has already been bought and guaranteed by the precious blood of a perfectly loved son. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the sufficiency of your word for the logic that you give us. And not only for the logic, but the proof. You don't base our lives and, and our trust in you on fiction. You base it on costly fact. And so we thank you for the costly fact of the giving of your own son. And I pray, Father, for each person sitting here today that they would rest, that they would rest in this sacrifice of the Son for their righteousness, for their here and now, and for their eternity. Strengthen us, Lord. Help us to glorify you with the obedience of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's